It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests, and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmi. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Yvonne Savio of GardeningInLA.net. Yvonne has trained more than 1,100 master gardeners through the UC Cooperative Extension's Master Gardener Program, which she helped develop, by the way. She currently sits on the board of the Southern California Horticultural Society and the Garden School Foundation Advisory Board. She was involved with the LA Community Gardening Council, the LA Food Policy Council, and the American Community Gardening Association. She teaches gardening classes throughout Southern California. Yvonne, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Well, I'm thrilled to be here, Christy. Happy spring. Happy spring. It is. We are recording this on March 19th, the first day of spring 2020, amid the coronavirus pandemic. So we are absolutely, I don't know about you, but I'm sheltering at home. But we were talking just before we started recording about how we have this beautiful benefit of being able to go outside into our gardens. That's what you've been doing, right? Absolutely. And harvesting all that good stuff. Right. That we planted a few months ago. So the benefits are are, uh, really nice. So you are quite a gardening celebrity in the Los Angeles area and beyond, having taught so many master gardeners over the last, what is it, 40 years? Um, Early 90s, or what was it? Yeah, I started (laughs) in L.A. I started in 94 with developing the master gardener program here. And before that, I had lived in Davis up in Northern California, and a couple of us uh, gardeners who kept seeing one another at our local nursery, we decided we needed a master gardener program, so we got the okay from the farm advisor there to be able to start our own program for Yolo County. So, so we played in a couple of counties. But that's, that was then, but before that, how though did gardening start for you? Because obviously it went back further than that. Oh, well, I'm that classic one that I got to play in the mud patties as I was growing up. Uh-huh. My folks had, uh, my dad had designed and built our house in Pasadena And my folks had chosen the lot because it had this exquisite oak tree that probably at that point was 50 or 100 years old. And so they absolutely loved the property, but of course it went up a hillside. So my early childhood was spent playing in the mud as they would cut the levels into the hillside and my dad planted all the fruit trees and mom took care of the vegetables and the roses and all that stuff. So we absolutely grew up knowing or not knowing any different than eating seasonally because it was whatever was happening in the garden is what we were eating. And if it wasn't ripe, then you waited till the next day before you picked it. But we did absolutely know what ripened to that perfect moment of of harvestability was all about. And that's something that really got me going with more of the garden education end. When I was at the University of California at Davis, I was in the Vegetable Crops Cooperative Extension office, and it was when the very first farmer's markets were um, being reestablished since they were victory gardens, and I really got angry at some of the citrus growers because they would bring 
fruits that were unripe. (laughs) And I thought for the very one thing that you can harvest at the last moment when it's literally falling off of the tree, that's going to be citrus. Right. So then I decided I really needed to alert local people more to how to plant things and when to harvest it instead of picking tomatoes and putting them on your windowsill in your kitchen and waiting for them to ripen. It was like apparently there had been that disconnect in when you were supposed to pick something because, of course, at that point there weren't all that many gardeners or publicly known, you know, to be able to alert people that they shouldn't just duplicate what they had to buy in the stores, which were, of course, unripe, hard tomatoes. Right, So yeah. that's really what got me going with it all. Got it. And you, you described your garden a little bit for our listeners, but can you go in a little bit more in depth? Because you are living in the same place as you grew up, right? Yes. I'm one of those lucky people that got to come home but wanted to (laughs) because it had my wonderful garden. We've got about a, um, I guess, a quarter of an acre as the whole property, but it literally goes up a hillside. So between the driveway portion and the flat portion where the house is, in back of the house, um, facing oh, north-northeast is this entire area that I use for the garden, but it probably is less than maybe an eighth of an acre, which is still a good-sized property. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do have the advantage of a lot of different raised beds in between the fruit trees that my dad had planted. So each of those was maybe 12, 15 feet apart, each of the trees. So in between there, I would put a, I build raised beds, and that's where I grow most of the vegetables. And you're in Pasadena where it gets quite hot in the summer, correct? Yes. Um, We are lucky that we're literally on this side of the hill where my garden faces the north-northeast. So we get that very early sun as soon as the sun comes up. But then about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the sun goes over the hill. And so in the later afternoon and evening, the intensity of the sun and the heat during the summer is um, modified just because we're literally out of the sun. That's so good to know because I've been dying to know how, because you, I've, I've seen, you know, on your blog, you're posting things like, I'm, you know, we're growing kale in the middle of summer. I'm like, how? <laughs> but it's because you have that <laughs> afternoon shade. <laughs> this is a perfect thing. Well, a lot of that, though, has to do with the richness of my soil after all these years. Right. And the fact that I'm, you know, I'm constantly at least twice a year, I use the stuff from my compost pile in between each new crop. But then in the fall is the major time that I have the transposition of the stuff from the, the couple of compost piles that I have into the soil with compost that I purchase and with steer manure that I purchase. And also my magic tip, I think, is the... Uh, coffee grounds that I have started using over the last couple of years. This is something that everybody has (laughs) 
access to, I think, because, you know, the Starbucks and the Pete's and all the different coffee places, including Trader Joe's that has their little snack section and serving the the uh, coffee, I collect like a five-gallon container of the coffee grounds that has the filters in it. Mm-hmm. And then I put that into the garden. And I'll, I'll give you a bit of a progress report here. Initially, there was one of my beds that I had not had a particularly good crop of peas one spring. And so I knew I had to do something in it. Didn't seem to be sufficient to add the compost and the manure each time I changed crops. Mm -hmm. And consequently, I put down about, oh, I dug in about maybe two inches worth of all of these grounds. Mm -hmm. And I had such a fantastic crop of peas that next year that that, or that season, that I decided this, there was really something to this. So I did more research on the coffee grounds, and I found that kind of counterintuitively, the grounds were not totally acidic the way I had assumed since it's coffee, but because they've got a good amount of nitrogen, they've got the phosphorus, they've got the potassium, so it's more of an across-the-board fertilizer. Mm -hmm. So whereas initially I had just put the grounds on my roses and my camellias, once I had that proof to my mind that the peas had done tremendously, so then I started putting the grounds on everything. And because it's already literally a, a vegetable, so to speak, you don't have to compost it first. Right. You just literally put it on as mulch. So that's what I have done over all these years. I guess it's about five years now that I've been doing this. And I've just been so pleased with it. And of course, it's coffee grounds and, and um, tea leaves and the whole thing. But it it has become such a wonderful resource for me. And I put it around my fruit trees as well. So it's not just the vegetable-raised beds. It's the fruit trees as well. So that really uh, has become a tremendous resource for me. That's wonderful. Yeah, I'm a big fan of coffee grounds, especially because they're free most of the time. And, you know, anyone who drinks coffee, you have a source right there. So... Absolutely, and you don't have to go through any composting process. Right. You literally can just put it out. The one piece of labor that's attached to that, though, I found is that putting the filter, I need to separate. You know, I just shake it out to Mm -hmm. get most of the grounds loose, but then I put the filters into the compost pile because they do need to be under a couple layers Otherwise, if you just toss them into onto the top of the garden, the paper will dry out and it'll just literally stay there for years. Right. So <laughs> I've seen that. <laughs> it's no fun. Um, yeah. It, yeah. That looks a little messy in the garden. It does. I, I feel like we could talk about pretty much anything here, but let's start with a couple of cool tips that, you, that you're known for. Uh, I know you have a great trick for deep watering that involves old nursery pots. Can you talk about that technique? Oh, yeah. This is great. This, this was initially from my father-in-law. He had, in between his tomato plants, 
he had the little gallon size containers, you know, that you'd buy any any number of plants from at the nursery. And these are the ones that have usually four or five holes at the bottom for drainage. Mm -hmm. So he had buried those up to their rims, and that's what he filled with water. What it enables is that the water gets released out into the soil that foot down, which is at the base of the container. So it's going directly to the root system of the tomato plant. So I expanded on this idea in a couple of ways. I was uh, just one of those odd things in life. I ended up having access to the five-gallon containers, mm. you know, the ones like you buy a fruit tree in or yeah. something. Again, with all those holes at the bottom. So I would bury those in a bed. <clears throat> this is the days before I became aware of soaker hoses and, you know, that whole drip um, method. Mm -hmm. But I still find that for my, especially for my deep-rooted plants like the tomatoes, that this is far superior method of watering. So I bury those containers, leaving only about four inches up above the ground level. Um, two things, um, I f either leave it empty in order to fill it completely with water, uh -huh. or I put a shovel full of compost or a shovel full of manure into the bin Oh. So that when I fill it with water, you're automatically getting compost tea or manure tea. That's clever. Released down out of those holes to your plants. And, of course, the real value of using the five-gallon instead of the single-gallon is that you have that water released a good foot or 18 inches down into the soil so that your plants that... You know, when you first transplant your plants, you're watering them at the top as well. But because the water is released from the bucket out into the soil, the roots automatically grow down to that where it's always nice and moist. And, of course, if you've incorporated all the organic matter into the soil over years, that whole soil profile remains nice and moist all the time, but also well-drained. Yeah. You know, that wrung-out sponge kind of texture to it. So it absolutely becomes the, the most beautiful resource for your plants. Yeah, it's a homemade Oya. The, the reason I leave it four inches above the soil is that initially I planted it at or buried it at the level where it was flush with the surface. But then every time I wanted to add mulch to it, right. you know, a good two, three inches, it, of course, would fall into the container. The other problem was that lizards love to, <laughs> to climb the walls, so to speak, so that every time I go out there and I water, I really have to make sure that I don't have some struggling lizard trying to swim above my flood that I've created. Right. So, you know, I'll scoop them out, and then they'll sit there for a while, kind of dazed that they're out of this flood, and then they'll proceed on with their lives. But um, <laughs> So that's another reason why I keep it that far ahead um, above the soil level. Yeah, it's, a, it's ingenious, and most people have those lying around or can get them relatively easily. It's a, yeah, it's a great thing. Yeah, because even at nursery 
groceries, you know, they've got stacks and stacks of those things in the back. And I'm sure if you offered them a quarter or something, you know, you could take as many as you possibly could use. Yeah. I want to ask you about, well, since we're on the subject of tomatoes, I know one of your, well, you were going to give one of the talks at Tomato Mania at Tapia Brothers Farmstand this last weekend, which was canceled because of coronavirus. But you have a great number of tips to give around planting tomatoes. We're holding one special tip for the end, but since we're talking about tomatoes and everyone's putting those in right about now, now, let's talk tomatoes. What are your favorite things to do when you're uh, when you're growing tomatoes? Well, I think the thing about tomatoes is that you have to recognize that the root zone on those plants can get down to three feet. Mm-hmm. You know, if the soil mix is appropriate for to enable those roots to get down that deep. But this is a huge plant. You know, especially if you're dealing with the indeterminate plants, which are the ones that keep on growing as well as setting fruit, and cherry tomatoes particularly because they automatically get to be huge plants. Mm -hmm. So consequently, you have to be aware that you need to provide the access in the soil or in a very large container to accommodate that root system. Now, especially in a container, just as an aside for any kind of plant, you really want to have a container that is deeper rather than wider. Right. Because the roots are automatically going to grow down because they're chasing the moisture that you have provided by watering the thing. Right. And as when the roots are staying because the pot is shallow, they're staying at the top of the surface. Once it gets into hot weather, you're going to have to be watering that thing every 35 seconds. <laughs> you know, it's just not practical. So you want always to plant uh, even short Uh, root plants, you know, like lettuce or pansies or something, you want to plant them in a deep container just so that you're not struggling with the watering issue and having your plants be struggling the whole time. Right. Um, And in tomatoes, if you do tomatoes in a container, you really should have maybe one plant, like a cherry tomato or something, And then you could plant shorter things right around it, like a couple lettuce or basil or chives or parsley or whatever it is. You can plant them around that because those roots will be shorter than the tomato roots, which will go down to the bottom of the pot. And consequently, all those plants won't be competing with one another for nutrition from the potting mix that you have them. That's a great idea, that using those multi-levels of the pot's strata to uh, interplant or, you know, do polyculture planting there. That's cool. The other thing that I, I would urge about tomatoes, especially since we're just planting them now, put their cages on them as you plant them. Yes! You don't want to... <laughs> Gee, that's a, the sound of recognition Yes, <laughs> tell them why, Yvonne. <laughs> because the whole thing is now 
it's easy to put them on there, you know. But later on, when you have this big scraggly plant and you're trying to tuck all these branches into the cage, it, it gets pretty maddening. Yeah. But not only put them on now, but give makes it be a taller cage than you assume it will need mm-hmm. because as you enrich your soil those plants are going to be lengthening especially if you give it any amount of nitrogen it's going to be growing up and you don't want to have the thing leaning over and then coming down the outside as well right now the other thing about putting the value of putting on the cage is that you need to let the plant grow until it is at the second rung of the cage which generally means about two feet tall from the surface of the soil. Now, the reason you're letting it grow that long before you let the blossoms set is that you want to have a completely strong plant already before it kind of takes this sidetrack and shifts its hormonal balance into putting out a blossom, setting it, and ripening a fruit. Yes. You want to make sure that you've got a really established root system before you're telling it to go on this side issue of what of course we call the fruit, what we're we're doing it all for. Excellent. But that way you have a really strong plant. Yeah. So I know you have a lot of tips on your website, Gardening in LA, and that's you also have a blog there. So can, let's talk about your website for a bit. What can people find when they go there? Well, lots of stuff. The entire website was an outgrowth of the emailing list that I had when I ran the Master Gardener program that I would provide, um, you know, if somebody or some group had a gardening class, I'd send out the email. I created all the monthly tips on that website. And so I kind of pulled forward to this new website that I created, having a lot of different resources for people, Mm -hmm. both ones that were static like the monthly tips, those I've up, I update a couple times, well, every time we go to a particular month, I'm, I review it and make sure there isn't something new that I should be adding. But also the events section, this is where I have a scroll that says upcoming event. And these are all events that people put onto my website. There's submit your garden events. And this is an online form and you just complete it and then I post it and that's what appears on the homepage. The oh. second part of the I'm, that's that's right. I, you've reminded me I need to go submit an event. <laughs> that's right. Okay, very good. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. The other, um, the second option is, or second availability under the events menu item, is the listing of botanical gardens and other organizations' garden events. And as being on the Southern California Horticultural Board, one of my responsibilities is to connect with all of the botanic gardens in our area and a lot of the other organizations like Theater Payne and get their listing of monthly events 
and then I create the huge long list and I post that on my website so that if they want to see everything that's being offered all over Southern California, then that's my purpose in doing this entire list. So they can go just to this one place and see everything that's happening all over everywhere. That's a great resource. Well, I'm glad that, that you feel so because that's certainly what the point is. (laughs) My blog is what I'm talking, what is literally happening in my garden in Pasadena at that moment. This is distinguished from the monthly tips because it is literally what is going on now. And Mm -hmm. I, I do it about every two weeks. And I go out and I take pictures in the garden and it literally tells me what to talk about. Right. For example... When we had that tremendous day of heat, you know, 116 is what we had here. Oh, my God. Well, the week before, when the weather people were forecasting that we were going to have this tremendous heat, I sent out a blog reminding people, water deeply now. Mm -hmm. Don't Mm -hmm. wait on this. Do it now because you want to have that soil profile down to a good foot or two, nice and moist, because the roots are going to be depending on that when this tremendous heat comes above the ground. The day after that tremendous heat, my blog said, don't prune anything. It may look like it's been scorched, but if you prune anything, you are going to be stressing that plant even more And you really don't know what portion of that plant actually was damaged. So let it just be. You know, even those of you that need neat gardens, let it be because you don't know what's happening. Right. So two two months later, my blog was, okay, you can prune now because we see all those little tiny new green growth we know exactly how much of each of those branches was dieback, but also how much of that plant has recuperated and is putting out that nice new growth. So now you can go ahead and get rid of all that ugly looking black, you know, black and brown stuff. And then a month after that, my blog was okay, now go in and really make the plant neat, you know, trim it back and make it more what you feel it is pleasing to you to look at. Right, so people so can was, follow was, along with what you're actually doing in your garden step-by-step step with everything that comes up. Exactly, and even if they don't have the particular item that I'm talking about, it alerts them that this is the time to do this or do that or wonder why something isn't happening or why it is just they can make an extrapolation to their own situation yeah the news menu item is things that come to me online that i think are of tremendous interest just generally to gardening people so i post them on there Ah, okay um the jobs section this also has an online form that if someone has a job opportunity 
they fill out the form, I post it, and that gets emailed to everybody. You have how many people on your mailing list that receive this these job listings? Uh, about 25, more than 2,500. Yeah, and I've used them for sure. When I've been looking to hire for Garden Nerd, I've used your, your website job listing form as well. Right, it, it really, and I've, I, it's so pleasing to me when people email me and say, I got the job, I got the job. Oh, great. <laughs> you know, that the magic works. The um, last item on my website is a web links, and this is split into three sections. The first one is University of California resources. The second one is other recommended resources. And then the third one is web appearances, and that includes the Green Gardener, which is Huell Hauser's visit to my garden, which was 1994. Oh you can believe it was wow. that long ago. You know, he actually had color in his hair then. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't just white, you know, uh -huh. but that is great fun, and that has a lot of my recycling tips that are, are great fun. And then, of course, um, that's where I'll post your link as well. Oh, but great. The, what I would like to invite everyone to do is email me on the homepage. I have this saying, join our Gardening in L.A. mailing list to email me at gardeninla at gmail.com, and I will add them to the mailing list. And these, there's the three items that I will send out. When I post my newest blog, when I add something to the news section, and the jobs section. And all the old uh, emailings that I've made are under the newsletter menu item. So that way um, they can uh, connect with me directly. And if they have a gardening question, generally I refer them to the, the helpline for the master gardeners, which is MG Los Angeles helpline at ucdavis.edu. And that is specifically the LA Master Gardeners. It's just the email address is system wide at UC Davis. Great. Okay, it is tip time. Do you have a favorite right? tip that you'd like to share with the Garden Nerd audience? Well, of course, and <laughs> it deals with tomatoes since that's our prime thing at this time that's of year. That's right. What I do is I love doing it to the Master Gardener class every year, and I always get my gasp of unbelievability. <laughs> and that is that when I purchase my tomato plant, and, and I recommend like a four-inch size container, and that the plant itself should basically be new, no taller than the length of your hand, so maybe six, seven inches tall. And you don't want any blossoms on there. You don't want any fruit on there. Uh, if it's the only one you can choose, then remove the fruit and the blossoms. Right. And when you plant it, you completely, well, not completely, but you massage the roots of the plant so that you re remove most of the potting mix. Now, this is why I'm not saying completely. Mm -hmm. You just must keep massaging it, and of course, you've made sure that the root ball is wet first, moist, so that it 
the as you massage the roots, you are loosening all that potting mix. Now you're going to keep that, but you're removing all that potting mix off of the roots because you're going to mix that potting mix in with the soil that you are going to plant the plant, whether it's in the ground or whether it's potting mix in a container. Now the point for this is that you are mixing, you're creating kind of a halfway house of soil mix between the new stuff and, and the old stuff. what it grew yeah. up in. Right. Once you get most of those, that potting mix off of the roots, you should have a clump of roots that is maybe two, three inches from where the roots begin, you know, and change into the stem. In, if you have any straggling roots, like one long thing that goes down another six inches or something, just trim that off. Mm -hmm. You really want the plant to depend on that maybe three inches of really intensive root growth there. When you plant it, you've mixed that potting mix and the new either soil or potting mix that you're going to use in a container. You've mixed all that up in a space of maybe the length of your hand, so maybe nine inches or so. Then hold the plant above the hole and gradually with your other hand scoop in the the mixture of potting mix and soil or whatever mm -hmm. so that all those roots hang down. You don't want them jammed sideways or anything else. You want them as deep as possible there. And then you firm the soil just with your fingertips and your thumb. You don't, you know, smash it flat with your hand. You're just doing like, well, your fingers, just mm -hmm. individual points there. And then you create kind of a berm around there with the extra soil so that it is the width of your hand going all the way around, maybe nine inches. And you fill it with water three times. The first time, because you've dug so much of that potting mix up that you've created a lot of air pores in there. So the first watering is going to fill all those air pores up. The second watering will go down a little more slowly because most of that has been filled in already. Mm -hmm. And the third time, you'll make sure that everything is completely nice and moist and all the way around that root zone now. That's it. What that accomplishes is that the roots have been loosened up. They can grow in any direction, and it's all going to be in that potting mix that they know because they grew up in it and also this new stuff. Because especially when you're growing in, you're planting it in the soil, especially like clay soil, which is quite heavy, mm -hmm. you really need to have that halfway kind of soil so that they go out into the native soil. Right. It's a nice transition. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that expert tip, Yvonne, and thanks for being on the Garden Nerd Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's always fun to chat gardening. Isn't it, though? I feel like we could talk forever. Now, you've already shared uh, your website and the details on that. Do you have any social media feeds that you want to share for our audience? No, I'm, I'm in my... Uh 
retirement, I am I am single tasking. <laughs> just just <laughs> okay. doing emails, just doing with my website. But I do love chatting with people by email. So, okay. And I love giving the um, the other thing on my website is the services, and that is I do garden coaching, coming out to people's places and talking with them. And, of course, the speaking engagements, I have the list of all of my mostly PowerPoint topics and the schedule of where I'm going to be speaking that's open to the public. And then, of course, the photography and the writing. Now, with the COVID-19, you know, the events that are listed, I have indicated at the top of those lists that people should connect with the venue before they go, because more and more every day, yeah. these gardens are closing up. So. Yeah, pretty much everything's shutting down for, for a couple of months at least, so make sure I you check the so. website. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Yvonne. And, um, you're and, welcome. And so I was, I was going to say, so you're retired, but you're not really retired. This is true. I just get to do the fun stuff now. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. All right, Garden Nerds, you'll find links to Yvonne Savio's website at GardenNerd.com this week. We'll also share all of her resource pages and links to her page with extensive month-by-month tips. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at GardenNerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under GardenNerd1, on Facebook as GardenNerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!